With Doit, optimizing your cloud spend while controlling your costs is easy. By combining intelligent software with expert consultancy and unlimited support, Doit delivers the true promise of the cloud with ease, not cost. Learn more at doit.com. D-O-I-T dot com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, place to talk all things software and technology. I'm your host, Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, joined as I often am by the editor of our blog and impresario of our newsletter, Ryan Donovan. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Ben. What's news? So there was a fun blog post released recently from a white hat hacker explaining how they got access to the systems of, they claim, half of America's fast food chains simultaneously. <laughs> I watched the video. I read a bit of the blog. I'd love to dive into the details. But before I do, top line thoughts here. What did you think of the, the breakdown? I mean, I think it's interesting in that it shows sort of how little some, some companies pay to security. Yeah. The sort of first line read is that they didn't configure Firebase correctly. It's just like they didn't yes. set up security on it. So the way the uh, attacker, the white hat, gained access is not complicated. You drop a Firebase config from the JS bundle into Firepawn. Pwn? Like own? Firepawn? Pwn. Yeah, yeah. But if you use Firebase's registration feature to create a new user, you get full privileges, read write to the Firebase DB. Yikes. The data exposes includes not limited names, phone numbers, emails, plain text passwords, only some had this, locations of the restaurants themselves, confidential messages, shifts for the following Chatter employees. Chatter is the name of the startup that they used as their backdoor, franchising managers, and job applicants. Yikes, that is pretty honed. Yeah, but wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. <laughs> what comes yeah. next? Um, well, apparently it, it got worse that you could grab the list of admin users and then splice Oof. a new entry in there and you got full access to the administrative dashboard. You know, Oof. you could uh, accept deny applicants and refund payments made to Chatter. Right. Yeah, it seemed like a pretty, pretty big hole there. You know, good good thing they were white hat hackers. They were doing this as a yeah, you know, test. They put up the timeline here. Uh, so this would have been June. They found this vulnerability. September, they finished the write up and emailed folks. October, the vulnerability is patched. September, the support ticket is closed. No thanks or further contact received, despite explicitly requesting it. Well, you got to be nice to your white hats when they come in with a bug bounty like this, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think one of the interesting things is that they started it by scanning uh, .ai right. sites. Basically, assuming that these are put up quickly, put up to get in on the AI bounty, um, right. but without doing the, the due diligence of security. It seems like a reasonable thesis. A lot of people mm -hmm. trying to move fast, trying to be first, and, you know, right, looking for young companies, which may not have as much experience. Reasonable, not mm -hmm. necessarily just because they're AI, but like a reasonable way to slice your, your attack surface. I guess the question in my mind is, in my experience on the enterprise software side, 
big companies require enormous amounts of upfront legal work and they need you to show all kinds of certifications that you're SOC 2 and you know ISO this compliant. And I wonder how they got around that or if this was somehow an exemption from that. I don't know. These are, you know, techniques that aren't tested for or aren't considered. This is from Mr. Bruh. Mr. Bruh's epic blog. Welcome gamers to my epic blog. My name is Paul. I'm a programmer from New Zealand and an aspiring cybersecurity, quote, professional. Oh, Mr. Bruh, you got your moment in the sun and congratulations to you. Yeah, I mean... You want to get famous on the internet, you know, <laughs> go, go bust some Firebase instances. Yeah. It seems like there was a time when web scripts, and I know we had a guest on not too long ago who mentioned that, you know, mm-hmm. web scripting attacks are still uh, a thing, but it seems like mm-hmm. in my experience over the last five or 10 years, most of the time the vulnerability is on the database cloud provider, cloud hoster where somebody mm. forgot to properly secure essentially an environment where they're storing stuff online. Yeah, I mean, I think that's because most of the the software exists on that, that cloud environment, right? Everything goes right, through the right. cloud. Right, that's true. So if you want to access the actual files, you have to get into the cloud. Yeah, no, that makes sense. But I guess it's funny because you yeah. a lot of times you think about like, the on-prem attack, the pen testing, the spear phishing, mm-hmm. you know, and yet this is like one person in New Zealand just poking around on Firebase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? I mean, it used to be that, you know, you could uh, just have fields execute arbitrary SQL code, overflowing right. their boundaries, doing like these sort of shady things, yeah. just because a lot of web stuff would just execute things as code. So at least we're we're right. making steps in the right direction. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I saw something recently that was pretty interesting. I can't remember what it was now, but it was it was about more like I was saying, it was about how somebody like used like a water filter to smuggle mm-hmm. some malware into a high security site that like, you know, came in and changed the water filter, but it somehow that it hooked it up to the network. Oh yeah. With uh everything being a smart device, that's gonna be right. You know, I, I saw somebody, uh, some something where somebody's like, why is my washing machine sending 3.6 gigabytes of data every day? <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, well, you're, a, you're a botnet, man. <laughs> right. Yeah, what was it sending? That's good. I want to know. I like that. Mystery yeah. surrounds the LG washing machine. 150 megabytes of data per hour. Yeah. That's a, from a rogue process. <laughs> and he ended up blocking it on the router. Yikes. We'll have to come back to this one when somebody gets the answer because it looks like it's still kind of, it was either being used to send spam or launch DDoS attacks. That's the hypothesis, but we don't know right now. And I, you know, that's the danger with everything being smart. Like, you know, I don't think we need everything to be smart. You know, bless them for for innovating and trying, but, you know, my fridge doesn't need Wi-Fi access. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the one that I read was interesting in the sense that or like, it's interesting in that, like, like a water filter, I'm not sure it was even like a connected or smart one, but it's just like, you bring it into the right area and it's, you know, able to look for Bluetooth and Wi-Fi connections and you may, you know, so like, sort of like you smuggle it in to get past the mm. air gap, you know, of, you know, needing to get onto these local networks where the signal isn't that strong. Right. 
All right, moving on to another thing uh, I wanted to discuss. So the folks over at Google DeepMind have progressively been making their way through you know, the intellectual challenges that humans take on. And they use the alpha system. Mm-hmm. So AlphaGo was the one that beat Go. And then they had AlphaZero. They had AlphaCode, which is really good at code. And this week, they talked about something called Alpha Geometry, which was able to score in between the silver and gold medalist at the Geometry Olympiad, which I guess is a Mm -hmm. proving ground for some of the best mathematical minds out there. Mm -hmm. And what was really interesting about this, and you and I have talked about this before, is that they combined what's great about the language model with something Mm -hmm. new called a symbolic Mm -hmm. deduction engine. Mm -hmm. And so they likened this to that famous book, Thinking Fast and Slow. You know, one Mm -hmm. system kind of provides intuitive ideas and the other one checks them, reasons through them, uses them to maybe draw conclusions or find a potential pathway forward and then they go back and forth to solve it, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I've read some, you know, theoretical takes on LLM AIs where they're saying they need to create a like a logical, semantic, symbolic um, language for the AIs, and they've right. done that in other areas. Right, create these formalist logic, and I think that's right. that's interesting. They're combining them, like here's a a sort of symbolic way of reasoning, and then here's the right. natural language way of assembling them together. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it makes sense if you think about biological intelligence at the human level, Mm -hmm. which is to say, at first, you're just kind of learning things experientially, instinctually, through trial and error. And Mm -hmm. a lot of what you're producing is nonsense, right? (laughs) And then over time, people give you, you know, symbols and structures and tools that let you go farther, right? Mm-hmm. With that intelligence. So like in this blog post, they wrote language models excel at identifying general patterns and relationships and data. They can quickly predict potentially useful contracts, but they often lack the ability to reason rigorously or explain their decisions. Sounds like children. Yeah. That sounds like my kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Symbolic deduction engines, on the other hand, are based on formal logic and use clear rules to arrive at conclusions. Yeah, from what I remember of of high school geometry, and and geometry was honestly one of my favorite math subjects. It was a lot of applying rules, applying techniques, right? You could just find the way into the puzzle and then follow the steps down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a quote in here that I thought was good from a Olympian, like someone who had gotten the gold medal. And it said, the output, you know, alpha geometry output is impressive because it's both verifiable and clean. It uses classical geometry rules with angles and similar triangles just as students do. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, it's not like it found a new way to do this, right? Right. And yeah, somebody, to your point, Ryan, another, somebody who's not just a gold medalist, but a fields medalist, we're talking a serious mathematician here. Hmm. It makes perfect sense to me that researchers in there are trying their hands on geometry problems because finding solutions for them works a little bit like chess in the sense that we have Mm -hmm. a rather small number of sensible moves at every step. But I still find it stunning that they could make it work. Yeah. I mean, anybody who's, who's doing rule-based deduction, mm-hmm. AI is coming for your job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when, when's the Fields Medal going to be awarded to, uh, you know, Oof, Alpha Geometry? Right. Or, 
Right, like Sony <laughs> gave that photography medal to the guy that gave their big prize to the AI picture. Yeah. yeah. That would be interesting. Like if they were, if the test could be taken online, right? And this, so then mm-hmm. half a geometry could enter. Yeah. All right, Ryan, I wanted to bring something up. Maybe we can sure. get some feedback from the community. You mentioned this last time, your next blog post, a must read, mm. is going to be about time travel. Give the readers just a little, <laughs> not a spoiler, a little teaser here. Sure. Well, as we talked about last time, there's the the time travel language, Mariposa, does interesting things. But in sort of looking at it, there was there was a whole, during the 80s and 90s, a whole set of little research languages that were about managing time and, and logically computating the, the time for hardware processes, mostly. Mm. I haven't been able to find a lot about it because it seems very much centered around two or three figures with a little bit of other stuff. And it's also from the 80s, so there's not mm-hmm. a whole lot there. But there's a lot of languages built off of Prolog, which I think is an old functional language, very symbolic too. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the future quantum stuff. <laughs> Everything is entangled. Yeah, we've talked once or twice on the podcast about, you know, the fact that in a sort of theoretical or a very limited lab environment, they have entangled data from, you know, one side of the world to the other and basically teleported it, right? Like it didn't go through a a wire or a cable. It was, mm-hmm. you know, entangled at the quantum level and when they interacted it with in with it in one place, it, you know, its state changed in another, which is pretty hard to wrap your mind around. Right. And there's um a paper that that goes through this theoretical approach of sending information uh, backwards a tick. <laughs> yeah, it, there's arguments that that's not how quantum physics and entanglement work, but right, you know, right. isn't it fun to think about it? Uh, yeah, Prologue first appeared in 1972. Uh, yeah. Robert Kawasaki has a credit here, and uh, it says, yeah. A logic programming language had its origins in AI and computational linguistics. All right, that'll be fun. So you're going to dig into, you're going to try to find some folks to talk to on this? I don't know if those folks are still around. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to, you know, it's a little, little dip in my toe into it. Mm-hmm. See what the, the time is about. Right. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right, last one. I just want to make a recommendation for a blog post. I'll put it in the show notes. It's not new. It's from the end of 2023. It's called The Radiating Programmer. And mm. it's about folks who want to be individual contributors, but who also want to sort of boost the productivity of, of everyone around them and do mm. so in a way that makes their own jobs easier by getting everybody sort of communicating in the same way. So this one has a bunch of sort of ideas about what ceremonies they call them the way like a scrum is a ceremony you Mm. could use to communicate but Mm -hmm. i think more interestingly it has the idea of like pushing information out rather than waiting for someone to come and ask you to pull you know from you Mm -hmm. and i just thought this was cool because that's kind of the thesis of stack overflow for teams right like the more you can sort of get the information out by answering the question once or by writing an article on it the easier it is for other people to learn from that and that yeah extends your influence within the organization right yeah and I mean, I've heard from folks that the real value of the senior level programmers are not that they're putting out the most code, is that they are helping everyone else become productive. Mm-hmm. They are stores mm-hmm. of yeah. information and coding practices. Yeah, I think that's right. 
All right, everybody. It is that time of the show. Let's get down with somebody who came on Stack Overflow, helped to spread a little knowledge or you know, had a little bit of curiosity. Congrats to On My Way 133, awarded a stellar question badge. That means the question has been saved by over 100 other users. What does the suspend function mean in a Kotlin co-routine? Helped 220,000 people. So very helpful to a large group of people. Indeed. As always, I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. Thanks for listening. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. Uh, you can find the blog at stackoverflow.blog. And if you want to reach out to me on Twitter, perhaps about time and programming in time, you can find me at Arthur Donovan. Sweet. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we will talk to you soon.